we have come to the plagues. And rather than go through each of them in meticulous detail, we are going to take the story of the plagues over the next few weeks and draw out a theme at a time, starting with the theme that is most primary, the thing the plagues are meant to do. Show the Hebrews they can and should trust Yahweh God. The point of the plagues is to demonstrate that God can be trusted. Now, after Egypt, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read God saying to Moses this, Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25. In the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that Yahweh our God has commanded us to obey? Then you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Yahweh did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. Those are the plagues we'll come to today. Verse 23. God brought us out of Egypt so they could give us this land they had sworn to give our ancestors. And Yahweh our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear them so God can continue to bless us and preserve our lives, as God has done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands of Yahweh our God that have been given to us. Your children will ask about the meaning of the laws. They'll want to know why they're asked to obey. After all, what is a kid's favorite question, if not why? Now think about all the possible answers to that question of why when it comes to obedience. Because God said so. Because it's God we're talking about. Because it'll keep you safe. Because you should. Overall, you could probably group the possible answers into one of two categories. One is indeed the because God says so category. Leviticus 19.19 says, you must obey. The other category would be because of what God has done for us. This is the category offered to us in Deuteronomy 6. There is a phrase that is repeated throughout the plague narratives of Exodus 6 to 11. It shows up eight different times and it's this. You will know that I am Yahweh. You will know that I am Yahweh. Pharaoh will know that I am Yahweh. All of Egypt will know that I am Yahweh. This is the no of acknowledgement, of regarding what is really true. What is really true is that I am Yahweh, your God, and no power, no God, no obstacle will stand between us anymore. This is the no of trust. Now, at times, any of us could find ourselves caught up in believing that we obey because God says so and forgetting what God has done for us. We all might find ourselves caught up in obedience rather than knowing God. And any time that does happen, we'll know it often because we will begin to feel skepticism that this obedience is actually leading anywhere, resentment, or a sense that things are arbitrary, And what is God really on our case about so much anyway? Or exhaustion, because we're trying so hard to be so good and it's just making us so darn tired. I mean, sure, all this is for God, we know in our heads, but still God seems bossy. Who made God the boss of me? And that's the thing. Christianity is not actually a God is the boss of me deal. The what of Christianity is not obedience. And the why is not God's the boss of me. The what of our faith is trust. And the why is because I know who God is. That is, I trust God. 
over and above the other options that I have for people or things to trust. I trust God because God has done so much to show they can be trusted. So before we explore the plague specifically, I want to point out three things that get misrepresented about obedience, all of which we will see in the Exodus narrative. The first is order. Obedience often gets put out of order. People are supposed to obey, and so we talk about obedience and focus on obedience and elevate obedience to be the first thing that any one of us should do if we want to be serious about our faith in God. But obedience from people is not what comes first. God goes first. The order is always that God goes first. And after God goes first, then people respond. After God goes first, then people might obey. People who want to be seriously engaged with their faith begin not with their own obedience, but with their attention to the character and actions of God who has gone first. The plagues, all of the exodus really, is all God going first. The people don't even participate in their own emancipation until the final of the plagues, and they aren't asked to obey until after they have been brought out of Egypt and are in the wilderness. God goes first. A second thing that often gets misrepresented about obedience is the process. The process is that God shows their character first. God reveals who they are first. And in doing so, makes it possible for people to consider that they would trust God. People would respond after they have gotten to know God by choosing their loyalty back. God does not expect people to obey blindly. God demonstrates who they are first so that after witnessing that, experiencing it, hearing stories from others about it, then they could make a choice. We started today in Deuteronomy after the Exodus has happened. But if you jump back to Exodus chapter 6, there are a few verses before anything happens where God says, I'm Yahweh and I'll bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. I'll rescue you from their bondage. And the passage goes on, God promising what God will do. Well, the thing is, people don't need to start responding to God with obedience until God has indeed done those things, kept their promise, shown their character, taken that action. God shows who they are. And because of who they are, then people can respond. Because of who they are, the people might choose that they will trust Yahweh instead of Pharaoh. Later on, the choice will be between Yahweh and the other gods of the nations around them. Sometimes the choice was between Jesus or Caesar. And in addition to the idea of some sort of specific power or representative God, there are also the more subtle options. God or money. God or national security. Or family life. Stability. Safety. The point is that there is a process that takes time, experiences that must be lived, stories that must be told, practices that need to be embodied through ritual. And God allows for the process of getting to know God before asking for people to pick their loyalty to God. Often these first two pieces, the order and the process, they get turned around and it becomes that people ought to act right first. Then the promise is that they would see the benefits or the blessings of acting right, 
and that that favorable circumstance would prove God's correctness in the commands that are given to us to obey. The problem, of course, comes when so many of us realize that the circumstances of our life remain challenging and we have to keep walking through anyway. The promised so-called blessings haven't materialized. And so we have to figure out where God is in all of that. It simply isn't the case that God works on a contract where acting right ensures a positive circumstance. Nor does God ever make that promise. What God offers is themselves, and what God promises is their presence. And so we have to remember to go in the right order. And we have to have space to respect the process. The third thing we often misrepresent about obedience is its purpose. We think that obedience is there to feed God's massive ego or assuage God's vitriolic anger. But God wants life, freedom, flourishing, not just for you, not just for me, but for the world. Obedience is particularly related to the things that bring about life and freedom and flourishing. You remember I mentioned that the Israelites weren't asked to obey until after God had already saved them. Well, that is specifically in the story when God has given them food in the wilderness. And the command they're asked to obey has to do with observing Sabbath. They're asked to collect their food for each day, but not the next one, where they can practice trusting that God will take care of them. They don't need to store up and hoard. But then on day six, they collect double, and on day seven, they rest. There ain't no Sabbath in Egypt. God is remaking them into a people with a radically new relationship between work and rest, between effort and caring for themselves. That's the thing they've been invited to obey. Similarly, when we see Jesus's critique of religious leadership, it is often here in the purpose of obedience. Jesus says to the religious leaders, you have given heavy burdens. And to those listening to him, he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The purpose of obedience is to bring more life and flourishing to ourselves and to the world as we have come to trust and be loyal to a God who has gone first in showing that they are trustworthy. So perhaps there's actually a fourth thing we get wrong about obedience, and that's its very definition. If our definition is compliance to a set of behaviors, we've gotten that wrong too. It's not that I comply with a set of behaviors, but that I let a person influence how I live my life, a person I've chosen to trust. We need a trust-based definition of obedience because God has shown that the order and the process and the purpose of obedience depends entirely on trust. Put another way, without the exodus and later without the resurrection, there is simply no good case to be made for obedience at all. But God knows that. So God goes first. And God gives time. And God shows God's character. So let's turn a corner here. I would like to invite you to consider what the Hebrews would be learning about who God was as Yahweh was trying to win their trust. The purpose of the plagues is not simply to free them. The purpose of the plagues is to win their trust. And while the plagues are directed at Pharaoh, Pharaoh's not the object of God's actions. Pharaoh's simply an obstacle God overcomes for the sake of the Hebrews. Now, he's a formidable one, certainly. 
But that's exactly why if Yahweh wins, they should trust them. And I've mentioned this before, so has Curtis, but it's worth repeating. For the Hebrews, this is for sure an if. The power they know is Pharaoh's, and Yahweh hasn't done anything yet to demonstrate that they're more trustworthy than Pharaoh is. So we're going to walk through the plagues here, not in great detail, but rather with just a few notes for each one about why it specifically would have been important to the Hebrews or what it would have said about Yahweh versus Pharaoh. So a quick reminder, if you'd spend a minute since you've seen what the plagues are. There's a staff that turns into a serpent. The Nile River turns from water to blood. Frogs fill the land. Gnats cover everything. Flies fill only the territory of the Egyptians, but not the camp of the Hebrews. There's a plague upon the livestock and boils. There's a hailstorm, a swarm of locusts, and darkness. Now there's also the plague of the firstborn observed in the Passover. We're going to give that its own week entirely on August 6th. For now, I'm going to walk back through that list. And for each one, I just want to point out some things that I found incredibly fascinating about why they were important and what they would have been showing to everybody as they watched this drama unfold, this contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh. So first, the serpent. The word is actually monster. It would call to mind a sea monster, a sign of chaos. In the ancient world, gods are good because they can order chaos. The most effective gods are orderly and ordering beings. Pharaoh rules a well-ordered realm of Egypt. But here comes this serpent indicating that Yahweh actually both controls and orders the chaos. Pharaoh would have actually worn a headdress with a snake on it, a cobra, a symbol of being the one who orders chaos. And yet here come Moses and Aaron turning a staff to a serpent. The first sign that somebody else might be in charge of what is chaotic and what is in control. Second, the Nile. This is the source of life for Egypt. Rain is second rate, but they have the river. Now, any god of Egypt has to control the Nile in order to claim authority. Pharaoh would be this one. The idea that the river has been turned to blood throughout is obvious hyperbole. This is all signs and symbols. They're not literal accounts. But what we're supposed to see is it's a pretty big blow. Like had Pharaoh listened this time, we could just call this whole drama now. But Pharaoh's magician advisors can also mimic this. Interestingly, they can turn water to blood as well, but they can't reverse blood back to water. They can only make the situation worse, not better. But when Pharaoh realizes this doesn't particularly affect him, He, like Voldemort in the Forbidden Forest during the assault on Hogwarts, he just goes back inside. It's not really his issue. Third of the frogs. The new thing we see is that Yahweh is creator here. Not just to make, but to disrupt and restore order. It's not only that there are creatures God has brought forth, but also that those creatures can invade in such a way to disrupt things so significantly. They're so pervasive, Pharaoh has to ask Moses to have them removed. And this time, again, the magic can copy but can't fix. Here's our first plague, incidentally, where Pharaoh claims that he will send the people back to Yahweh. Fourth are the gnats, which the Bible says are like dust. 
naming them as like dust helps us see them as a symbol of death. This is a plague where Yahweh is asserting that while my people have no life, here there can be no life. The plague of the gnats is the first one the magician technicians cannot mimic. And they say, this is the finger of God. This is a clue in the way the writer has told the story that everyone is going to start catching on except Pharaoh. There will be a continued expansion of people's recognition, if not trust, that Yahweh God is doing something Pharaoh God cannot compete with. Next are the flies. And this is the time when Yahweh controls the scope of the plague. They go throughout all of Egypt, but not into the camp of Goshen, the slave camps where the Hebrews are. This is also a point in the story where the wording about the Hebrews is a bit ambiguous in a really interesting way. It helps us remember that these are not the ethnic Israelites exclusively, but rather the low-class, marginalized slave group. Many of them would be Israelites. There would also probably be some circumcised non-Israelites and probably others as well. In other words, when the fly plague differentiates those Yahweh is protecting and those Yahweh is up against, Yahweh opts for the group on the margins, for the suffering, for the oppressed. Those are the ones God has chosen to be God's own people. Then we have a narrative of a plague on the livestock and boils. They're both told pretty quickly. They follow the same formula that the writer has in mind for us, a stylized telling that shows us most of all, this is the uh, official scholarly term, by the way, that Yahweh rules and Pharaoh drools. Then there's a storm of hail. And this is a time that we see Egyptians acknowledging Yahweh. They pull their own livestock in before the storm at the warning of Moses. Again, showing how there is an increasing recognition that Yahweh God can be trusted to do what they've said. Even if perhaps they don't all necessarily trust Yahweh God for their loyalty ultimately. The hail is a plague that has Yahweh saying, send my people back to me or I will send more plagues on you. It is an escalation of who has authority. Then there's the plague of locusts. Even more Egyptians are in on what's going on at this point. We're now at a point in the story where only Pharaoh is left on the outs. At the point of the plague of locusts comes a layer of realizing that Yahweh has now become incomparable. Incomparable in power, Yes, but also incomparable in choosing to side with the needy and the marginalized. Yahweh is not simply using their power to impress Pharaoh as if Pharaoh is the center of the story. Yahweh is using their power in the service of emancipation for the Hebrews. And the narrative has gone on and escalated and expanded and continued for the sake of the people who need to see more signs. This is the process. In Exodus 10 2, God says, I've done it so you can tell your children and your grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them. And so you will know that I am Yahweh. God is not just going first to save them. This is God in the process of winning their trust. This is their story. This is their children's story. This is their grandchildren's story, a tale of God's fight for them. God's power on display for their sakes. A tale to fight against despair and resignation. What's interesting too is that God promises the story to be told to the children and the grandchildren at the same time that Pharaoh is trying to barter for the children 
to stay behind. He says he'll let the adults go, but leave the kids. Now, in the ancient world, it is actually not entirely unlikely that Moses should take the deal. We'll just have more kids when we get out. But instead, because this is about the character of Yahweh God, Moses insists the children come because they have value. And the final plague we'll look at in this sequence is darkness. The chief god in Egypt is Ra, god of the sun. The name Pharaoh is son of Ra. And here comes the final plague before the Passover. No sun, just darkness. Who is in authority now? Who can be trusted now? Yahweh is over light and dark, heaven and earth, life and death, creation and chaos. Do you see when we list them like this? All that the Hebrews would now be seeing of who God is. It's not just that God is taking power to free them, but also doing so in specific ways that point to God as creator. God as the one over all things. God is the one who can be trusted. And trusting God is the primary thing God hopes for out of all of this. That's God's pattern. The order is that God goes first. The process is that God shows who they are and that they can be trusted and gives time for us to see so. And then the purpose would be, would you let your trust lead to obedience, living in ways that bring more freedom and more life? And so may you today find yourself more able to trust. And when you can't, would you find yourself able to be honest with God about that? So that you may walk in greater life and freedom. Amen.